Thank you, praise team. <clears throat> uh, if you have your Bibles, go ahead and open up to Psalm chapter 95. Psalm 95. Uh, we'll be reading in the NASB. Uh, as always, if you do not have um, your Bible with you, the words will be on the screen. Um, Christina, is my water anywhere nearby? Is this? No? Don't worry about it. Oh, it is? Okay. Psalm 95. We'll read it together. Thank you very kindly. Psalm 95, we'll read through all of it. Um, again, the words will be on the screen. <clears throat> Let's read together. O come, let us sing for joy to Yahweh. Let us sing joyfully to the rock of our salvation. Let us come before his presence with thanksgiving. Let us shout joyfully to him with psalms. For Yahweh is a great God and a great king above all gods, in whose hands are the depths of the earth. The peaks of the mountains are his also. The sea is his, for it was he who made it, and his hands formed the dry land. So come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before Yahweh, our maker, for he is our God, and we are the people of his pasture and the sheep of his hand. Today, if you would hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as at Meribah and, do, and, and as in the day of Massa in the wilderness. When your fathers tested me, they tried me, though they had seen my work. So for 40 years, I loathed that generation and said that they are people who err in their heart and they do not know my ways. Therefore, I swore my anger, they shall not enter into my rest. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Um, so having grown up in the church, one of the things that we would always kind of like think about and talk about is like worship, right? And what it means to be like a true worshiper, like fake versus true, that kind of thing. And then we would always think about like whether your worship was right or if you're doing it the right way and all these kind of things. And this was something that was really important to all of us growing up. We made a big deal out of it. We were always thinking about, like, what is good worship? Like, what does it look like? Was that good worship, right? So every Sunday, you know, the pastors or other leaders would think, like, and be like, hey, was that good worship? Was that, like, genuine, authentic, and so forth? And if you've, been on, if you've ever been on a praise team, you kind of wonder this, right? You're like, oh, was that set good? And if you ask Ben and, and one day and any of the leaders who've, uh, any, who's done it, they always kind of ask themselves, like, how do we create good worship, Right? And then, of course, you think about, like, oh, like what's the song order? Like, do we do fast songs? Do we do slow songs? Do we get the mood right? Yada, yada, yada. You, you think about all these things, and all of it is an effort to kind of measure or, like, identify or understand what good worship is. And then one day, I think I was in, um, I was in high school or maybe in college one day, um, someone came to me, and I think it was a pastor, and he was, like, preaching, and he said, you know what? Worship isn't a thing that you do. It's not a place or an activity. It's a lifestyle. And it went, Poof! Like, everyone's mind was like, whoa. I remember a guy next to me was like, dude, that was deep, right? And so we thought, like, that was an amazing thing. Worship is a lifestyle. It's not a thing that you do. And then I was like, okay. And then and for a little while, I was, like, transfixed by this idea that worship is a lifestyle. And then I kind of thought about it, and then I really wondered one day. I was like, wait a minute. What in the world does that mean? What does worship being a lifestyle even really mean? Like we all love cool sayings. We love things that we can quote, put on Instagram, hashtag, whatever the thing might be. But I had no idea what that meant for worship to be a lifestyle. Like no one could tell me exactly what that would do to my daily life, morning by morning, afternoon by afternoon, and so on and so forth. So I was like, wait, for real, like practically, realistically speaking, what does it mean? And so it got me thinking about worship and a lot of these things. And then as I became a pastor and things like that, and Pastor Goose will tell you the same, every pastor in the world is concerned about worship. Like, what is it? Why do we do it? How do we do it? Why is it important? All these things. Because we gather every single Sunday to worship together, and we want to know what it means to worship well, right? 
And we also want to know that this thing that we do, this worship, we call it corporate or congregational group community worship, that it does something for us. That we're not just walking into a building, doing these things ritualistically, doing the same thing over and over, and then walking out and having no impact at all. And then I thought about it and I realized we've never actually discussed worship like that in here ever before. Just what it is. We've talked about it. We've mentioned it. We've said worship is kind of like this. And we've talked about it in the context of a lot of other things. But we've never like just dove into what worship is. And considering that we're going through the book of Psalms, which is a book of songs and of prayers and worship, I thought, hmm, this would be a good time to do it. And then as I was preparing this week... I stumbled upon this sentence by Tim Keller in one of his uh, writings, and he said this. He says, the difference between a life that just goes through the motions and a life that truly follows God and is transformed by God is worship. And I was like, whoa. Because I think you all know what that's like, don't you? Going through the motions is a thing that it seems like every Christian has known at some point or another. Coming in, doing this, listening, singing, doing whatever it is, and just going through the motion. It means nothing the moment we say amen and you're out that door and you go out to lunch or whatever it is you do. Like it doesn't do anything. And he says the difference is worship. The difference between a life that just does this each and every single week in and week out and has no impact versus one that is transformed, right, and follows God for real is worship. Like, be honest, if I gave you the quote and I gave you a blank at the end, right? The difference between a life that just goes through the motions and a life that truly follows God and is transformed by God is blank. I would venture to say that most of us would not have put worship in that sentence. I think most of us would have put like faith or belief or service or maybe mission, depending on where you are. But worship, probably not the one that most of us would pick. But Tim, as Tim Keller says, and I agree, worship is the thing that makes the difference between a Christian life that just goes through the motions and one that actually follows and is transformed by God. And so today, what you got to do is ask yourself, not in a mean or guilt or shame-bearing way, but just kind of ask yourself, am I just going through the motions? And if you are, cool in the sense that it happens. Or ask yourself for real, is my life really transformed by the gospel, by this worship, by this God who we worship and sing to and say is so good, as we just sang? Okay? So ask yourself, be honest, be true, be real, be authentic. Is my life just one that goes through the motions? We just do this? You show up because of whatever the reasons are? You just kind of go through? Or is it one that's actually being transformed by the tenets of the gospel of a God who dies for our sins so that we don't have to die? And so today, to do that, as you think about that, we're going to unpack three questions. And they are, what is worship? Why should we worship? And three, how do we worship well? What is worship? Why should we worship and how do we worship well? Okay, so let's dive into that first question. What is worship? This is the best definition that I've come through, and I've synthesized a bunch of different definitions that I've found over, and this is kind of the one that I came up with, okay? Putting all the different sources. This is not new. It's not original. I, I put all a bunch of stuff together. It says this. Worship is ascribing greatest and ultimate value to something in such a way that engages your entire being, mind, emotion, and will. Worship is ascribing, naming, placing the greatest and ultimate value to something or someone in such a way, in a manner that engages 
everything of your entire being, your mind, emotion, and will, which means if you miss one of the three, it's not really worship, okay? And this text that we read today, Psalm 95, has been used for centuries and centuries by the early church and Jews alike as a text that they would go to to understand what worship is. And so I thought it would be really interesting for us to look at it to kind of understand this. Worship is ascribing greatest and ultimate value to something in such a way that engages your whole being, mind, emotion, and will. Now, if you look at the text with me, you'll notice that there's three calls to worship in the text. They're found in verse 1, verse 6, and verse 8. Verse 1 says this, sing for joy, shout joyfully. It's the language of emotion, right? When you sing and you shout and you do these things, you're doing it emotionally with a lot of conviction, a lot of feeling, a lot of power. Verse 6 says, come, bow down and kneel. That's a language of will. Unless someone is pointing, you know, like a deadly weapon at you, like you're not going to just do that on your own. You will power. You say, I've decided to kneel down, to come, and to bow down and worship this Lord. And then verse 8, it says, do not harden, but rather hear. Here has come as the end of verse 7. That's the language of reason. Now knowing what you know and having thought what you thought, now decide to not harden your heart, but actually listen to God and decide that he is the one that you want to follow. Three calls, okay? And they're all very, very important. Emotion, will, and reason, all very, very important. This is why worship is something that engages all of you. And I want to stress this for a second because it's really important. Because if worship is going to be something that transforms your life, it's got to be everything or nothing. You can't just have bits and pieces. And I think you know this, right? Every single Christian that seems like has grown up in the Korean American church or every church it seems like in North America know this kind of thing. You can do this again and again and again. You can attend every retreat on the face of the planet, every conference that you can find and get your hands upon. But if you just go through the ritual and the experience of it, but never feel or know anything on the inside, this 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 burning joy for God, this, this unquenchable, ravishing sense of beauty that God is amazing and is so good that you just want to shout it out with everything that you have that comes from this deep gut place you haven't worshipped. Like, you know God is good maybe in here. You'll say like, I'm not saying God isn't good, so on and so forth, but if you don't have anything within here, There's no actual connection, no heartfelt experience. It isn't worship. On the flip side, you know this true. You can go to a retreat and do all these things, and you can have the greatest worship in the world. You can jump up and down. When I first got here, I'm not not bashing anything, but when I first got here, I was astounded because every worship, did you know the people, the the young people and the, the younger ones in here have no idea, but some of the older ones do. They would come up to the front of the stage in the old chapel, and they would all jump up and down every single Sunday. And the praise team had to play like, Fast songs, like all day and one way or whatever, whatever those songs were back in the days, songs that I loathe at this point. But they would do that, and you can have this great emotional experience, but if that doesn't ever change your life patterns, your postures, your paradigms, the way you think, the way you understand the world, your actions, then that's not worship. All you did was have some sort of emotional experience like you were at some concert. It's what we call the spiritual high that we all hate so much. So what the psalmist is saying, most likely David, he's saying the worship is something you do with everything you got. And it's got to be all or nothing. It's got to engage your emotion. It's got to engage your will. And it's got to engage your reasoning and your thinking, all of it together to indeed be worship. To ascribe the greatest and ultimate value to that thing that you are worshiping or that one that you are worshiping. 
You must feel in your gut that it's the best thing on the face of the planet and beyond. You must know in your mind and decide that it's the best thing in the world and beyond. And you must then decide to follow and worship that thing or that one because you know and you feel that it is indeed the best thing ever in the whole wide world and beyond. It is ultimately valuable. Now the psalmist is good to us. And not only does he call us to worship, he gives us the reasons why. We can look at them again. Verse 1 through 2, it says, Shout joyfully, sing. Why? For Yahweh is a great God, a great king above all gods. Verse 6 is called, kneel and bow down. Why? For he is our God, not just any God, but our God, our shepherd, the one who enters into a relationship with us, the one who knows us by name. And then verse 7 and 8, hear and do not harden. Why? Because when you do, he will loathe you. For this first generation, for 40 years, he loathed the generation that was going through the wilderness. Now, again, I'm thankful to Tim Keller here. He gave this example, and I couldn't think of a better one. But he says worship is something like this, and you can follow along, right? So let's just say, um, let's say my wife, um, Christina, right, um, has always known that she got this little piece of jewelry, like a ring, that was passed down to her from her mom, and she knew that her mom got it from her mom, and then she knew that as far as she can remember, her, mom, her mom's mom got it from her mom. So it's many, many generations old, okay? But she got it kind of when she got married, but we moved a bunch of times, and so she kind of put it away somewhere and kind of totally forgot about it. And then one day as she was doing, uh, organizing and kind of going through her stuff, as she likes to do a lot of times, she discovers this ring. She's like, oh, it's dusty, it's kind of, you know, old-looking, all that kind of stuff. It doesn't look all that great. But then she's like, hmm, I wonder if this thing has any value. I wonder if this thing is good for anything. So she takes it to a jeweler, right? to get it evaluated, to get it appraised, as they say. And then she goes to the jeweler, and the jeweler comes, and he looks at it, and he's like, okay, I'll take a look. And then he does this little thing. Have you ever seen the movies where they have that little, like, black eye thing? And they, like, you know, pop it, like, into their eyes like this, and they're, like, looking at it like this, right? And he's looking at it, and he's studying it, and he's, like, you know, bruising it over, and he's doing all the whatever jewelers do. He's looking at color. He's looking at texture. He's looking at aspect, whatever, whatever, all that kind of stuff. If you want to know what that is, ask, like, the married guys in here. Maybe they'll know as they go ring shopping. Like, there's a bunch of stuff that diamonds have and makes it, like, valuable. I used to know. I forgot. Um, but anyways, like, they're looking at all of it, and then he's looking at it, and he's studying it, and as he's going, the lady, Christina's in the study, and she's like, and all of a sudden, he's like, his body's starting to get a little tense, right? Like, he kind of tenses up, and he's like, and you can tell he's like looking at it like more carefully. He's like being much more deliberate about the way he's looking at it, and he's like, mm, mm, and then he's like looking at it, and all of a sudden, he's like, whoo, whoo, he's like breathing heavy, and you're like, what, the, what, the, what is going on? You're like, what? And he's like doing this, and all of a sudden, he just kind of like drops it, and he just goes, where did you get this? And Christina's like, I got it from my mom who got it from her mom, who got it from her mom, and I think she got it from her mom, I think. How long have you had this? Ever since I got married, 10 years ago, but obviously it's been around for a long time. She goes, do you know what this is? And she's like, uh, a diamond ring? Like, and he goes, I don't think you understand what this is. Christina's like, excuse me? And he goes, this is craftsmanship and a diamond and a work that simply does not exist on planet Earth anymore. It is an ancient work of art, a technique and a type of stone that no one has been able to find for centuries. No one on Earth that is alive right now can make this piece of jewelry. No one can even try to attempt to recraft something like this. This thing that I'm holding in my hand is a priceless artifact 
that the world has not seen in a very long time. It's more valuable than everything I have in my shop right now and more valuable than anything I've ever had. Put it all together and it's more valuable than that, more valuable than anything I'll most likely hold in this palm of mine in my entire lifetime, and it's yours. Now, if Christina is in the gift shop, depending on who it is, you know, Christina will probably call me, honey, what do I do with this? But Then all of a sudden, it hits Christina. Because she's lived 10 years of her life, her mom and her mom and whoever has lived knowing or maybe not knowing, right? Having no idea that within their possession, within their grasp, they've held the thing that might be the most valuable piece of jewelry on the face of the planet. And they lived not knowing anything about it. And all of a sudden, they realize this thing, priceless, they, they don't know what to do with it, right? I can't sell it. Like I would, but they now know that they hold she holds and she owns a thing that is unlike anything he's ever, she's ever known. And her whole body, mind, will, emotion, the jeweler's mind, will, emotion, all overtaking because they do not know what to do with this thing that is of ultimate worth that they've never seen before. They just had a worshipful experience, mind, emotion, and will. It's why the word worship comes from the old English word worth-ship. To describe or ascribe a worth to something. And now knowing this, Christina will have to make a decision and hopefully live her life according to knowing that she's got this thing that's valuable. Her life is going to change no matter how you look at it and how you see it. Now you could probably draw the lines and where I'm going. But that is the way every Christian on the face of the planet is supposed to be knowing that we can call Yahweh our God. See, if you read the polls, and politically, when everyone votes, they have to take this census, and they got to tell them, uh, the, you know, basically the thing about who they are, what they believe in, all that kind of stuff. Mo- the majority of America believes and says that they're Christian. I think more than 67% or something like that. Some alarming number. But it seems that a vast majority of Christians, churchgoers, people just like us who go into churches today, worshiping and doing whatever it is, mostly live their lives completely unaware and totally unaffected by the ultimate value of their God, who is not only their God, but their father, their savior, their shepherd, their friend, their Lord. And I think this is why Tim Keller says the difference between someone who just goes through the motions and someone who really, truly follows God and is transformed by God is worship. They observe, they study, they realize, and they decide to then ascribe that ultimate and greatest value to God that indeed rocks your entire being because you realize what you have and what your life ought to be like. So every time you gather in here, this experience is supposed to be one that energizes you, gives movement to your mind, body, and soul, and transform it to something that it wasn't before. That's what we're doing in here every single week. It's not just a thing that we do. Now that we know a little bit about what worship is, we got to look at then why do we worship? Now, you may be like, uh, Pastor Pete, the... Like, if you have that thing, then obviously, like, you should live according to it, right? But, yes. 
but no at the same time. Because just knowing that God is of ultimate value isn't good enough for most of us, isn't it? We live in a world where you think you have the greatest thing in the world, and then 10 seconds later, you realize something is greater. And it doesn't matter what that thing is, you just realize it's just not that great 10 seconds ago, 10 seconds later than what you thought it was in the beginning. The answer to why we should worship is simple. It's found in verse 3. For Yahweh is a great God and a great king above all gods. Now, that sounds simple enough, right? Yeah, God is good, and he's the best, better than everybody else, right? And it's like, okay, Pastor Pete, tell me something I didn't already know. Like, how is that going to change the way that I worship? But I think if you look a little deeper, I think it unlocks something that's utterly crucial to us being able to worship. What the psalmist is saying is this, to worship God, to sing, to shout, to kneel, to bow down, to hear, and to submit. Because God is a great king above all gods, says that number one, There are other gods out there. You have to recognize that. And number two, that we are already worshiping another god, whether we recognize it or not. See, worship isn't a matter of simple belief and saying like, you know what, today I'm going to worship this god whose name is Yahweh. That you're going to go from not worshiping to worshiping. I mean, that's what a lot of us think. A lot of us think, you know what, I don't believe in God, I don't have faith in Jesus, I don't worship God, but today I'm going to try it. When you take salvation and you receive it and all of a sudden you worship in you, that what you're doing is going from non-worship to worship, but we've gotten it wrong. Because if that was the case, then the psalmist would have said something something like this, worship God because he's amazing. Worship God because there's nothing like it. Worship God because you just don't know anything better, maybe. Worship God because this reason and this reason and this reason, A, B, C, D, E, on down to C, is makes God great. But the reason why he says that he's greater than other gods is to tell you that you are already worshiping another God, and therefore you should think about who you're worshiping, who you're ascribing greatest value to. We've said this before in here a lot, that every single human being is a worshiping creature. We're made this way. It's why we're obsessed with superheroes and hero and, and sports figures and whoever. We love to worship something. We love to adore something. We love to put value, put, put value to great things. Which means the world isn't divided into religious versus non-religious. I hope you know. It's not divided into people who worship and people who don't. It's why sometimes if you talk to somebody and be like, hey, do you know these? And be like, well, sorry, to, sorry, bro, but I'm not religious. And we're like, huh, are you sure? That's the way I, I respond to people. If someone, one time someone said, I talked to him, I was like, hey, do you know Jesus? And he was like, well, it doesn't really matter to me. I'm not religious. And I was like, you sure about that? And he's like, he gave me this. I was like, what do you mean? And I was like, you sure you're not religious? He's like, no, I'm not religious. I don't believe in anything. And I was like, um. Because I think the world is divided between people who worship things or the worship God who gives life, joy, hope, eternity, security, and all those things versus people who worship things that distort, cause suspicion, create selfishness and failure and utterly darkness and death in the long run. That's what the world is divided into. The world is divided into people who either worship the God who will give life and joy and peace and eternal life one that will not fail you, one that will not distort who you are and who you're made to be versus people who worship things that will distort you from what you were meant to be. And now the psalmist gives us reasons why God is great. He says the sea is his, the mountains are his, and so on and so forth. But you got to ask yourself, what are you giving greatest and ultimate value to? Now, if you don't believe me, 
Maybe Harry Potter will convince you. Now, I'm not a big Harry Potter fan, but uh, and in his first, and I think it's in the first book. I don't know if you know this scene, but Harry um, is walking around and he goes to, like this old like you know, library part of the thing, and then he he uh, discovers, stumbles upon this mirror called the Mirror of Erised. Do you know this? Does anyone Harry Potter fans in here? Man, every oh, we have some. Every time I use one of these examples, like nobody knows anything. But anyways, he finds a desire, and it's called Erised. And by the way, uh, she's not as the author. What, what is her name? J.K. Rowling, right? She's not as brilliant. Erised is just desire spelled backwards. I don't know if you know that. But anyways, he finds the mirror of Erised. Okay, and when he finds the mirror of Erised, he goes up to it, and then he looks into it, and do you know what he sees? He sees his parents. Mom, dad. Now, he's never known or even seen his parents, what they look like, but he sees two, a man and a woman, and they're looking at him, and what he sees in the mirror is a man and a woman, his parents, we think his parents, and they're hugging him, they're loving him, they're saying amazing things to him, and so on and so forth. And so he's like, oh my goodness. Like, he's mind blown. He's like, oh my goodness, parents I've never known, the parents that I've wanted forever and ever and ever. So he gets so excited, right, that he leaves the place, and he decides he's got to go tell Ron, his best friend. Right? He's like, Ron, bro, bro, you got to meet my parents. I finally discovered my parents. He's like, yeah? So then he goes, and he's like, hey, when you go to this mirror, if you look into it, you'll see my parents. So the Ron's like, okay, cool, let's do this. So he goes, and this isn't the part of the area they're not supposed to be in. But anyways, Ron goes, and when Ron goes up to the mirror of Erised, what does he see? Do you know? What? He sees himself as like the head champion boy. Quidditch champion, he's big, he's brawny, he thinks he's all that. He's the top dog at Hogwarts. And so, so Harry's like, hey, do you see my parents? And then Ron's like, I don't know what you're talking about. He's like, well, you don't see my parents? Like, they're right there. Like, I just saw them. And Harry can see them. But Ron, I, you know, I, I forget the scene exactly. But, like, Ron is like, no, I don't, I don't know what you're talking about. And so Harry's like, uh. And then later, Professor Dumbledore, right, Harry goes back to go to the mirror. And Dumbledore's there. Like, it would happen, of course. And then, you know, he does an invisible cloak thing. And he pops up. But Dumbledore's already there. And then he explains to him, right? Now, this is what Dumbledore says. And he says this. Let me explain. The happiest man on earth would be able to use the mirror of Erised like a normal mirror. That is, he would look into it and see exactly as he is. It shows us nothing more or less than the deepest and most desperate desire of our hearts. That's why like, the happiest man on earth would need nothing because he's happy. He's totally content and he would just see himself and nothing else, right? However, this mirror will neither give us knowledge or truth. And then Dumbledore says this in Pantheon. He says, men have wasted away before it, entranced by what they have seen or been driven mad, not knowing if what they shows is real or even possible. All that it's saying is that every single human being on earth has a deepest desire that if you had a mirror of error said, you would see what your deepest desire at the bottom of everything is. Strip everything else away, and indeed, you and I have ascribed greatest and ultimate value to something. And whatever it is, and this is the most important, whatever you've ascribed certain value is, has completely orientates your entire life. It's why Dumbledore says people have wasted away, gone mad, looking at the thing. Every single one of us has an ultimate value that we've already ascribed it would take me a million years to name all of them, but I think you can think of what they are. It may be acceptance. It may be a control, power, success, beauty, fame, intelligence, approval. 
like Harry, a good family, a good secure job, a nice house and a nice car with a white picket fence, a family that looks like this, the perfect career, whatever it is, every single one of you in here, if you were to look at the mirror of Eris, it would have something, and that something is controlling your life because it is the Lord of your life. Which means then that worship isn't deciding to worship God from non-worship to worship, but rather it's transferring your worship from whatever it is that you're worshiping unto worship of Yahweh. That's what this place is for. It's why I always say, if you've, if you've been around me a lot, that to say Jesus is Lord is one of the most dangerous sentences you can ever utter because you're saying by those simple three words that no one else is Lord or whatever else was or is Lord of your life is no longer the Lord of your life because Jesus is Lord. You can only have one Lord, not two or three or four, just one. And I think all of us know deep down that's a lot harder to actually say Jesus is Lord and to live it out than you and I would want to believe. And if you think, you know, oh, Pastor P, you just, you like to make everything sound so dramatic, you like to make everything sound so you like, you know, your voice gets all boomy and you do these things and you make it like, you know, you know, whatever, whatever. Consider this. If you think this is a joke or if you think that you, this does not apply to you and it isn't the case, there's a way that you can tell and it's very simple. Think of the times your life is anxious, where your life is torn down to pieces and you start freaking out and you feel like you can't breathe, you can't do stuff, and just, just utter uncontrollable, just a sense of whatever overcomes you. And then think about what is causing that thing. See, whatever you're living for, Whatever it is that you're desperate for, whatever thing that you've ascribed greatest and value to, whenever that thing or person gets threatened, you freak out because you don't know what you would do if that were to be taken away. I've told you this before. That used to be my family. When I came to Houston, it was my family. If my family got taken away, my life was over, I thought. I started trembling and quaking and not, going through emotions I've never gone through. Why? Because I thought that the one thing that I had to have in the world was my family, my wife, and at that point, my two sons, Connor, two months old, and Mason, two and a half years old. It was the greatest and deepest desire and the thing that I ascribed greatest value to. And when it started to get torn and torn apart and being threatened, my life just crumbled all around it. And I realized that everything that I had done was oriented around that one thing. And guess what? If it's that one thing, it ain't God. That's just true. And it's a fact. Because you know deep in your heart that anything that you ascribe that much worth to can die and fail and disappear. You know it. Because if you didn't think that it could die or disappear, what are you freaking out about? But if that one thing, that one person is God, you don't freak out. Why? Because can't nobody touch God? He's God. What do I have to worry? I don't got to worry about God's well-being. The only thing that can stand up to any pressure or any threat is God. Because we know no one can touch God. No one is more powerful than God. It's why the fruit of the Spirit are things like peace, joy, 
love, kindness, gentleness, self-control, patience, you know them, those are things that nothing can touch. It's what we should have because we know that God is untouchable and he loves you and you are his and he is yours. I mean, think about it. Think about where all your problems come from, where all your anxieties come from, where all your fear come from. They come from a thing that you know could get taken away and die and you never have again. It's why there's not one universal thing that everyone's afraid of. Maybe death is the closest thing to it, but indeed everyone has something that bothers them. That's why some things bother Jenny, some things bother Kayla, some things bother Kayla. But they're all different. Why? Because we have something that we've ascribed greatest value to, and it's only our thing and not anyone else's thing. And when that thing gets threatened, it bothers you. And we come up with different fixes and different things that we can do. If our relationships are breaking apart, we try to spend more time to fix it. We try to go out on more dates if you have a relationship or a dating relationship. You try to do more things, get more gifts, do more romantic things or whatever. If your money is breaking down, you work harder. You get another job or you do other things. You invest in a 401k, whatever it is that you do. Whatever is breaking down, you try to come up with fixes. You work harder and you do these things. But the Bible tells you that the ultimate fix is one thing and it's one thing only and it's worship. It's why David asks, the one thing I ask, this I shall seek that I dwell in the house of the Lord all my days and gaze upon his beauty because his house will never crumble and his beauty will never fade. Everything else, it ain't so secure. And only when then you see that God is more beautiful, more powerful, more amazing, more loving, more kind, more just mind-boggling than anything else and therefore more central. You are fearlessly confident. You are transformed and day by day you cling to that thing because you know that is your ticket to life forever and ever and ever. We talk about it all the time in here. There are so many good things in the world that you can desire and want and have but it can never be the one thing because that one thing can only be God because everything else will fail you. Because our God is the only one that does not fail you, the one that comes to rescue you, the one that looks death in the face, takes death, and then rises from it and then gives you life eternal. Every other God you've got, every other thing you've ascribed greatest value to, if you fail it, your life is over. It makes you miserable. It tears you apart it tells you how big of a failure you are. It tells you that you can never do it again. It tells you that you'll never ever be the thing that you wish it would be because you failed this one thing. But God is the one and only person whose grace is everlasting, whose mercy is never ending, and it's unchanging. And we'll give it to you every single time. Why? Because he can take it and everything else cannot. That's why the Ten Commandments start. You shall have no other gods because no one else is good enough and can take the burden of being your God without being ruined and destroyed by you. It's why we always say, if death could not take down our God, what could? Give me an answer. You don't have one. And not only that, God says he's coming back to make everything new the way it was meant to be. What else would you ascribe your greatest value to? Is anything else worth it?
Now then, third question. How then do we worship well? I want to give you three things from this text. There's more, but three things that I think is really important. First is community. Now, I've taught you how to read the Bible in here a little bit. When you read scripture, you want to pay attention to verbs. That's very important. That's where all the action is. And then another thing you want to pay attention to is pronouns. Singular, right? male, female, so on and so forth, plural. And did you notice something? Every pronoun in this entire psalm is in the plural. Let us worship and sing. Let us shout joyfully. Let us come before his presence. Let us shout joyfully. For the Lord is a great God and a great king above all gods. Come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before, for he is what? Our God. We are the people of his pasture. That's purposeful. You and I are called to worship together. It's why we gather together in this place. It's why in this room you have 11-year-olds all the way up to 35 and beyond. A little bit is four years older than me. 39, right? That's why you have that in here. Because it's a plural. It's a gathering of the people. See, individual worship is important. Individual prayer is important. I suggest you do it. Go read your Bibles on your own. Go pray on your own. That's all really, really good. But congregational community worship is super important. We live in an age where people say, oh, I don't need to go to church to know God. And you know what? You may think that's true, but the quickest way to not know God is to stop going to church. <laughs> We're supposed to do this together. In Scripture, it seems, if you read it, it's always pointed to this, this ability, this command, this understanding that congregational gathering of people and the worship that we do here together has a power to transform people. C.S. Lewis has an example that's really amazing. He uses, it was, it was him, but he uses three different names. I'll just use David, Daniel, and John, the most generic names you can come up with. If that's your name, I apologize, but you know it's true. But anyways, Daniel, David, and John are super close friends, okay? They're like best buds. Three musketeers, always together, always doing together, the closest friends you've ever seen on the face of the planet. And apparently C.S. Lewis and his two friends like that were, were like this. And then all of a sudden, one day, David dies. I apologize if your name is David. I don't know why I picked that name. I just did. David dies, okay? And to comfort himself, Daniel goes, well, sucks, really sucks, but at least now I'll have more of John to myself. And therefore, I'll know John more than I've ever known him before, Right? There was three, and now there's two, and so now I just put more of my energy into the one. It makes logical sense, right? But So he tried that, and he thought that that was what he was going to get, but then what he found out later was that, ironically, it wasn't true. And in the end, what he found that he didn't get more of John, but he actually got less. And when he looked into realizing why, he realized that there were certain things about John that only David could draw out. That John's fullness was best as the three, because certain parts of David only John could bring out. Only John could make, or only, uh, only John can make David, right, more happy. Or only more, sorry, David could make John more joyful. Only David could understand John in a certain way. And the three of them together, they brought out this fullness, which means that John's fullness was best as the three. And if this is true about human beings, how much more might it be that we would need to draw out God's goodness with all of us, which means every single one of us in here has something to contribute to this community and to this worship and to this experience and to this life that only you can draw because only that can be drawn out from you, which means if you go missing, we miss out on something in here. And our hope is that we would help you all understand what that one thing is. 
From small to big, every single one of you has something to contribute, which means that the more diverse this community gets, the better. It's why we're doing young, old, male, female, so on and so forth. It's why our church's hope is that the entire church of KCPC, we become one church because there's ways that grandmas and grandpas worship that you ain't never seen before. There are ways that your parents pray in Korean that you ain't never heard before, power that you've never known unless you hear and receive that prayer from them. And there's a thing that you can offer to them that they don't realize and recognize because you do things that they do not and they cannot do. It's a thing that we get by being one, a church as diverse as we can be. We are meant to worship in community. Don't ever try to do it on your own. The second thing you need is truth. The question that most people would ask if they're reading this and being critical and analytical would be, how does a psalmist know that God is a great God above all the gods? Like, like what? Like, how, do you, how do you know? What are the reasonings? Okay, well, okay, I get it. The Bible says the sea is God's, the mountain is his, and, and yada, yada. Like, I get that. But in the end, if we're being honest, it's like all of you. I can tell you that until I'm blue in the face that this book and this word is true. But until you decide to submit to the fact that it is true, it will not have an impact on you. I know that. Pastor Goose knows that. All of the leaders, they know that. We can do the best job of everything that we do, but until you decide with your own, your emotion, your mind, and your will that this indeed is the truth and it's worth living for in the way that it's described, it means not much because you will not do much with it. The Bible is indeed understood as a revelation of God. It's about knowing who God is. And as we learn about it, you got to submit to it. It's the jeweler studying and examining the diamond at the end being like, holy moly, this thing that we've got here, wow, that changes the ball game. And he's got to change the way he's lived and the way he will live going forward. It means that you can't just choose the things that you think sound good and the things that apply to you and things that are easy for you. It means you've got to apply the whole thing. It's why we in here try to teach you how to read this text and understand it. And then we don't skimp away from the tough stuff and we just go through it. I love the fact that our adults, they pray through Sebekido all 365 days of the year, basically all year long, minus Mondays. And they just go through the entire Bible, book by book by book. Did you know that? I've had to preach through Ezekiel and Zechariah and other texts I've never preached in English before. And I had to preach them in Korean. Why? Because they read the entire Bible. You can't just pick and choose what you want in here. And that's not just because it's like a thing and you should be more whatever. No, no. The reason is, is you cannot worship God for who he is without actually ascribing to everything. And the world that you live in is actually would disagree with me. They would say, no, nah, I'm just going to do whatever I want. Like, I'm going to take the parts that I like and listen to the parts that I don't like. And when, someone, when, a, when a text gets a source, someone says something that is from the Bible and I don't really like it, I just, whatever. I just, you know, no, I'm good. I know better. No. That's not the way you can be. And the reason is because if you don't submit to this whole thing as it is, there will never, ever actually truly be community. And here's why. I went to Thailand not too long ago. And let me just tell you, even though those people may, might be known as uh, Asian, I'll just, you, the people who went to Thailand, they'll tell you, they look nothing like me. And there's so many different looking people in Thailand all over the place. And so everything about them is very different from me. So much about them is different from me. But if I find a Christian in Thailand then I should be able to be confident that that person is my brother and or sister and that he or she is a part of my family underneath the name of God, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Why? Because that person, I hope, would submit to all of this and I to all of this. That means we have something in common that can never change and that makes us family and community. It's the only way you have it, to submit to the truth. 
So submit to the truth. All of it, not just parts of it. And then lastly, and we finish here, the third thing that you need is Sabbath rest. Now you may have noticed this psalm takes a weird turn near the end of it. It sounds really great in the beginning. Oh, worship him, sing joyfully, come and bow down and do all these things. And all of a sudden, in verse 8, Today, if you would hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as at Meribah, blah, blah, blah. And then I was low, the generation, yeah, yeah, it just turns bad. The, the tone turns bad, and the story goes kind of off kilter, and you're like, well, what was going on? Did the psalmist have a bad day, or like, you know, like, did he forget? Did he have, like, amnesia or whatever? No, 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 that's not what's happening, okay? If you notice, in verse 8, the voice changes. The first seven verses is basically the psalmist speaking, the person who's writing, most likely David. And then all of a sudden, it turns to God's voice, his first like, you know, first-person voice. And basically what God is saying is this. Let me synthesize it for you. He's saying to the people, you got to remember what happened in the wilderness, he says, a long time ago. The time when they were rescued from Egypt and they were in the wilderness and they, before they got to the land of Canaan, the milk and honey land, remember, right? And he's saying that land was a land of rest, the promised land. And the story he's referencing is to the entire Exodus type of story. And this is what happened in that story. Let me just give you a brief background. They just crossed the Red Sea, a.k.a. the Red Sea split open, and they walked through. Remember that? Right? And they walked through, and they got out, and then they were supposed to go and journey to the promised land. But indeed, as they were going, all of a sudden, they go, and they start complaining because the land that they come to to rest at, right? They're, they're uh, you know, wandering people, so they travel for a while, and they stop at a place. They rest up. They pitch tent and then sleep, that kind of thing. So the first place they stopped at, no water or at least not a lot of it. So they start grumbling and complaining, and then God, right, gives them water and then even shows them how to, like, make it sweeter. And then they go, and then a little bit later, like in a chapter later, I think Exodus 15 or something like that, they go, and they get to a land, and there's no food. And they're like, Moses, God, where's food? We're, we're hungry out here. We're starving. Like, you know, do something. And then what does God do? He brings manna, bread out of the heavens, right, just enough for what they need. And then they get to another place, and right after that, they get to this place, and again, they get to a place, and they don't have any water. But now the people are pissed off. And they basically say something along the lines of, like, dude, is God even with us? Like, does he even care? They even go as far as saying, like, does God, did God bring us out of Egypt to bring us to a place where we can't get no water and food to make us and our children die? Like, dude, what are you doing? They're so angry that Moses thinks that they're about to stone him. And so Moses is like, God, uh, Yahweh, you got to do something because these people are really, really angry. What's going on? They even, it seems to me that their attitude is basically saying, God, Moses, this sucks so bad. I would rather go back to slavery under the hands of Pharaoh. This is that bad. And God makes Moses and Aaron strike the rock and then water comes out and then everything is all good. Well, kind of. But the question we got to ask when we read the psalm is, like, why this ending? Seems totally out of place. Seems like it doesn't, like, doesn't seem to make sense in the context of everything, right? Now, if you read in Hebrews 4, the, writers of, the writer of Hebrews kind of goes to the same type of thing. He, like, goes, like, like, what's going on? And the question he basically asks in the beginning part of Hebrews 4, you can go read it, is, like, he says this. He's like, wait, I don't, I don't get. Why does God say to the people through David, do not harden your hearts that you don't enter the promised land of rest when in the end, as you know, through Joshua, the people actually entered the promised land, right? Like, they actually got the promised land in the end, so why is God saying, do not harden your hearts? And so the, uh, so the, the Hebrews uh, author is being like, wait, there's got to be something there. And what he decides is that the thing that the people and the Israelites who have been uh, rescued from slavery need isn't the promised land, the physical land, Cana, the land of honey, um, Cain in the land of uh, milk and honey, but indeed something else. That's why in the psalm it says a land of rest. They shall not enter my rest. 
And so everyone thought that rest was like, like a hotel, like, like the new land where they can go and like chill out and have a vacation and all that kind of stuff. No, no, no. God says, no, that's not what we're talking about. We're talking about a spiritual rest that's way bigger than physical rest. Stay with me here, okay? And then the he, author of Hebrews, he basically says that rest is what we call the Sabbath rest. And we talked about it here. Today is y'all's Sabbath. And there's a rest that you're supposed to get on this day that is different from any other day. And I've told you in here before, if you've been with us for a while, that indeed it seems to me that God has saved something of himself that you and I can only get when you take Sabbath rest properly. A part of his goodness, a thing that he's kept from the creative world and the thing of his creative energy and all this kind of stuff that indeed you can only get. And that the thing that you must do in this place when you gather on Sunday is to put everything aside and to get that rest from God so you can live the rest of your week in such a way that you can have life, joy, and peace. Because if you don't, good luck. And if you don't, oftentimes this even Sunday thing becomes work. You gotta do it right. You gotta serve away. You gotta da 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 this and this and this and this. But Sabbath rest, gospel rest, is knowing that Jesus lived the life that you and I needed to live but could not live and died the death that you and I should die but won't die because he died it for us. And in this place, when you gather in this place, you're reminded all the time that this is the God we serve and therefore you can worship and sing and pray and cry and laugh and celebrate and mourn all those things with every bit of freedom that you can ever indeed have. Why? Because you know that Jesus did all the things that he did for you so that you could worship and have the life that you were meant to have. To take a break from the rest of the world that distorts you from the workplaces that distort who you are, from the pressures of the world and the idolatry of the world and everything else that makes you think differently than the way you're supposed to think and the way you're supposed to live and to come into a place of utter freedom and joy, togetherness, community, peace, all that stuff so you can do everything that you can to indeed just give all that you have and God will pour out his blessing upon you and he'll say, you are my son, you are my daughter and you are meant to live a life better than the one that the world describes for you. If you follow me, if you love me, if you worship me, if you follow my ways and you take this rest on and indeed you will have it. Now let me finish with this. To this day, there's a moment that I feel and a moment that I experience, or moments I should say by now, that I feel like it's just unlike anything else that I get on planet Earth. The first time I truly experienced this was at my friend Paul's birthday party. If you've been around for a while, Paul Westerholm, he's a white guy from Ontario. He came, spoke at a retreat one time. He was having a birthday party, and he invited 20 of us from school. My wife was there, uh, and he asked me to lead worship. I was like, what the? It's a birthday party. So after we ate dinner, I made dinner too. It was kind of funny. I made dinner, and then I led worship. Um, we made Swedish meatballs, and then it became a thing. And then I led worship. And then as we were leading worship, as I was leading this worship, and we were singing the, uh, the song, God is Gracious and Compassionate. And as we were singing it, all of a sudden, and Christina will tell you this, we were enveloped by a choir of the people, and it sounded like angels were singing because it was all one voice, all in tune, and it was just this majestic thing that I had never heard before. And both of us, Christina and I, got out of that place, and we were like, wait, what just happened? It was like the most amazing thing. Our spirits were so free and light, like there was nothing else in the world more important than that moment. And when I first got here, there wasn't much of this going on. And then five, six, seven, maybe eight months later, some, sometime, all of a sudden, one Sunday, as we were responding to something, it broke out. And the voices filled up the sanctuary, and the band couldn't be heard, and it was just the 
just the throngs of people just screaming and shouting, and it sounded like angels were singing a choir rising above anything else we've ever heard before. And then it didn't happen again for a little while. And then at like retreat number four or five, uh, after I'd gotten here, all of a sudden we got there, and then like, like the second worship in the morning, like after the, after the thing, uh, one of the days we got up, and then all of a sudden it just went, and you couldn't hear the band. It was, so, it, was, it was to the point where I think like Sabrina took a video of it because she was just like, what in the world is going on? And we were all in the back, and you could just hear it. It was just like just angels just singing and filling up the entire sanctuary at Lake Tomahawk. That entire tabernacle was just filled with the voice, and I was like, whoa. And the next retreat we got there, and I think it was actually Paul when he came and spoke. And right off the jump, we got into worship. And the very first song that came up, the people did their thing. Some people were standing. Some people were lying down. Some people were sitting. And we were just worshiping. And then the voices came up. And it was just like, just, just loud. And you, Danny could barely hear himself up, up in the front. But it didn't matter. Everybody was just worshiping. And after, the, after Paul spoke and then we did worship like that again, he came up to me and he goes, whoa. And I was like, how was it? And he was like, most retreats that I've been to in most groups, first night is always like this warm-up night, but y'all go to the, y'all, like, he didn't say y'all because he's not in Southern, but he's, he's like, you guys, like, you guys go for it off the jump. And I was like, that's just, I, I, yeah. And every retreat, it was like that for a while, and then all of a sudden it infiltrated this space where we worship with not a care in the world, where your voices cry out because you know the words you're singing are true. And your life is transformed emotionally of your mind and of your will. And you come, you bow, you kneel, you humble yourself, and you bring yourself in front of God and the people. And you say, God, you are the one that is greatest value in my life. And there's nothing else quite like it. And I'm going to give you everything I have. And I'm asking that you will transform my life so I can live the life you call me to, to be joyful, to be kind, to be peace, to be gentle, to have self-control, to be patient no matter what in the world happens. And I will always turn to you and say, you are God above everything else and you are more worthy than anything I've ever known and my life will declare it and sing it and live it and it will be everything until the day you call me home and that my friends is indeed what fully worshiping is and it's the thing that we're after and I think we can get there the more we look every single day and say God you are more worthy than anything else that I've ever known and if we worship like that in here and it happens every single time we gather. Then this city will change. This church will change. And the world, little by little, will change. I promise. So friends, brothers and sisters, family, the people who I would rather, the people who would rather be than anywhere else in the world, can we, every time we gather, worship our God? Because you've decided, because you know, and you felt that he is the thing, the one of greatest and ultimate value, and you will do everything in your power to give it to him and then be transformed by him. That is worship. So friends, brothers and sisters, young and old, come. Join me. Join us. Join the angels as we sing and shout as we bow down and as we kneel and as we not harden our hearts to God's ways and hear his voice and decide that he is good. Let me pray for us and then we're going to sing songs together. Let me pray. Father, we thank you. And in just a mere moment, we're going to sing that song again that we sang earlier, that we have been saved by you and that you are so good, better than anything else that we've ever known. And help us to sing it 
to declare it, to know it, and to live with everything that we have. Help us in this moment to transfer whatever it is the thing that we've ascribed greatest value to, the thing that we think that we cannot live without if it isn't you, and to transfer that value unto you and give you that value this moment in this place and let it be the thing that moves us and transforms us, oh God. From young and old, experience, not experience, it does not matter. Help us to gaze upon your beauty in this moment and say, God, you are the thing. You are the one. And whatever it may be that we've ascribed that value to, help us to transfer it to you. Help us to place it upon you and fall upon our knees, humbly saying, God, you are worth it. To your name and to your fame and to your glory may be the praise of all the people to the ends of the earth and the ends of the age, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Join us as we